This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine, and it's a delight to have you with us today. Now, on this program, as you will recall, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive. Uh, She reads it and we discuss it, and then we ask her to read one of her own poems that's been published in the magazine. And I'm so happy today to welcome Erica John to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. Thanks, Paul. I think that poetry does last, so it can be archived. <laughs> well, that's that's part of what we're doing here, and I suppose, um, you know, in, in terms of your own poetry, um, I, I don't want to sound like a, a fawning fan, but I first read your poems in 1971, Fruit and Vegetables, when I was starting out in the poetry business myself, and I've loved them uh, ever since. Erica Jong, of course, the recipient of such honours as the United Nations Award for Excellence in Literature, the Italy's Fernando Pivano Award for American Literature, the best Hulkin Prize from Poetry Magazine. Great delight to have you here. So the poem that you've chosen from that vast archive of which we're so proud, is a poem by John Updike. It's called The City Outside. Was John Updike someone you knew, perhaps? Updike was someone I corresponded with. I can't say that I saw him face-to-face very much. He discovered my poetry and my first novel, Fear of Flying, and wrote the kind of review in The New Yorker that authors dream of. He seemed to have read Fruits and Vegetables, Half-Lives, and then Fear of Flying. And he fell in love with my work. And when my editor at Holt read me the review, I couldn't believe it. It was the dream of, of a young poet novelist to get such a review. And then we began corresponding. And what a wonderful correspondent he was. He was marvelous. He would send you postcards. He would send you letters. One time I was in a health spa in Mexico, and I wrote him a long letter 
about what it was like eating organic vegetables. And I had just published a book called Witches. Mm -hmm. And I talked about the herbs that I found there that the witches had used. And he came back commenting on all these things. And then I read The Witches of Eastwick. Mm -hmm. And he had not forgotten a thing about the herbs. And of course, he had gone even deeper into the research. So in some way, we impacted each other in our writing, but we weren't face-to-face friends. We seldom met, usually at literary events, just to say hello, and the rest happened on paper. Beautiful. So what is it about this particular poem, The City Outside, which I vividly remember choosing for the magazine with all the wonderful correspondence, indeed, that was associated with that, Um, What is it about this uh, poem that uh, attracts you? You know, Updike was kind of a light versifier in much of his poetry. And then he got cancer and was dying. All the heavy stuff went into his novels. But in his poems, he was sort of like Ogden Nash, being clever and witty. Which, by the way, is not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing, of course, and I love it, and I love him for it. But then he developed cancer, and he began writing a sequence of poems which are collected in a book called End Point, and you published them in The New Yorker. Yes. And they are totally different in tone from the other poems, and I was so knocked out by the way his tone shifted. And as he was dying of cancer in a hospital in Boston, and he's chronicling the end of his life, the treatments, and he's really staring death in the face. But he hasn't lost any any of the wit, of course, any of the humor. There's a phrase in this poem uh, that I think is just absolutely splendid. He describes living in Boston, quote, in furtive semi-bachelorhood, which is, you know, uh, which is a phrase as one unpacks it that just uh, blossoms and blossoms. It's just a beautiful phrase, absolutely beautiful. You know, why don't we listen to this poem and uh, then uh, we'll uh, have an opportunity to discuss it. So this is The City Outside. Uh, which is part of a sequence of poems called End Point. And it was published in, in The New Yorker on March 16th, 2009. And here's Erica Jong to read it. The city outside stirs early. Ambulances pull in far below, unloading steadily their own emergencies and stray pedestrians cross nameless streets. Traffic picks up at dawn, and lights in the skyscrapers dim. The map of Beacon Hill becomes 3D, a crust of brick and granite, the statehouse dome a golden bubble, single as the sun. I lived in Boston once, a year or two, in furtive semi-bachelorhood. I parked a Carmen Ghia in Back Bay's shady spots, but I was lighter then and lived as if within forever. Now I've turned so heavy, I sink through 20 floors to hit the street. 
I had a fear of falling. Airplanes spilling their spinning contents like black beans. The parapets at Rockefeller Center or the Guggenheim proving too low and sucking me down with impalpable winds of dread, engorging atria in swank hotels, the piano player miles below his music, his instrument no bigger than a footprint. I'm safe, away with travel and abrupt perspectives. Terra firma is my ground, my refuge, and my certain destination. My terrors, the flight through dazzling air with the blinding smash, the final black, will be achieved from 30 inches on a bed. Strontium-90, is that a so-called heavy element? I've been injected, and yet the same light, imbecilic stuff, the Babylon TV, newspaper fluff, the drone of magazines, Banalities, kind banter, plows ahead, admixed with world collapse, atrocities, default and fraud. Get off, get off the rotten world. The sky is turning that pellucid blue, seen in enamel behind a girlish virgin. The doeskin lids downcast, the smile demure, Indigo cloud shreds dot a band of tan. The Hancock Tower bears a slice of night. So whence the world's beauty? Was I deceived? That's Erica John reading The City Outside by John Updike. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. I have to say, Erica Jong, that... When I hear you um, read the phrase, my fear of falling, a phrase from one of your own works comes to mind. And don't you think that Updike is referring at some level to fear of flying? He talks about an airplane the next moment. It never occurred to me, Paul, but he and I probably shared a fear of flying. Yes, but I think that, I mean, I do think that it would be very difficult in that era for him to uh, use that phrase without at some level, you know, nodding in your direction. I think it's lovely. Um, You know, reading the poem again, of course I read these poems at the time he died, and I was knocked out. You printed the whole sequence in The New Yorker, and I read them with awe. I have to say. And then I kept thinking, he knows he's dying, and somehow the poetry has gotten deeper. You know, I was reminded there of um, the very end of that poem. There are a couple of words that he uses. One of them is beauty. Mm -hmm. Another has to do with the idea of deceiving or deception. 
And, uh, of course, um, one thinks immediately of a poet who died young and for whom those two words of a certain resonance um, adieu the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do, mm -hmm. deceiving elf, truth and beauty. I'm thinking, of course, of John Keats, and I think he's thinking of John Keats also. Well, John Keats was the first poet I completely adored. After I got over Edna St. Vincent Millay and Dorothy Parker and all the poets that adolescent girls who write adore, and I think they were both very good poets, That's right. by the way. That's right. And I think that uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay wrote wonderful Shakespearean sonnets. Brilliant. I am not putting either one of them down. Mm -hmm. But when I became a little older in my poems, I fell madly in love with Keats, of course with the great odes. And then... I went to Rome to see where he died. And then, you know, there's this wonderful little museum on the Spanish steps in Rome mm -hmm. where Keats was dying of tuberculosis and writing his very last letters and poems and having this tortured love affair in which the last love letter arrived after he was dead and buried in the English cemetery in Rome from Fanny Braun, of mm -hmm. course. And he became a very important figure in my life and my poetry. So not only did I visit the house where he died and look at all the books that he was reading in the last year of his life, um, but I thought about him dying at 25, a virgin, probably, though madly in love with Fanny Braun. And I thought of those great odes. And the poem I wrote about him, which was published in The New Yorker, is called Dear Keats. So it, in fact, takes the form of a letter. And indeed, as you suggest, uh, Keats is one of those poets, I often think that if he'd never written a poem, even if he'd, ne if he'd never written a poem, he's a writer who would mean a huge amount to all of us because his letters are so extraordinary. The letters are amazing. Do you remember the line, load every rift with ore? Yes. I mean, so many of the lines in his letters meant so much to me as a writer and continue to mean so much to me as a writer. Absolutely. And, of course, on March 17th, 1975, we had the pleasure of publishing Dear Keats, uh, Erica Jong, and you're going to read the poem for us now. Dear Keats, already six years past your age, the steps in Rome, the house near Hampstead Heath, and all your fears that you might cease to be before your pen had gleaned my dear dead friend, you were the first to teach me how the dust could sing. I followed in your footsteps up the heath. I listened hard for Lethe's nightingale. And now at 31 I want to live. Oblivion holds no adolescent charms. And all the souls of poets dead and gone, and all the bards of passion and of mirth cannot make death its echo, its damp earth, resemble birth. You died in Rome, 
In faltering sunlight, Bernini's watery boat still sinking in the fountain in the square below. When Severn came to say the roses bloomed, you did not glut thy sorrow, but you wept. You wept for them and for your posthumous life. And yet we all lead posthumous lives somehow. The broken lyre, the broken lung, the broken love. Our names are writ in newsprint, if not water. Don't breathe on me, you cried. It comes like ice. Last words. I can't imagine mine. Perhaps some muttered dream, some poem, some curse. Three months past 25, you lived on milk. They reeled you backward in the womb of love. A tepid February Roman spring, fruit trees in bloom and Hampstead still in snow, and Fanny Braun receives a hopeful note when you are two weeks dead. A poet's life always awaiting mail. For God's sake, kick against the pricks. There aren't very many roses. Your life was like an hourglass with no sand. The words slid through and rested under glass. The flesh decayed to moist Italian clay. At autopsy, your lungs were wholly gone. Was that from too much singing? Too many rifts of ore? You spent your life breath breathing life in words, but words return no breath to those who write. Letters, life, and literary remains. I find that I cannot exist without poetry. Oh, for a life of sensations rather than of thoughts. What the imagination seizes as beauty must be truth. We hate poetry that has a palpable design upon us. Sancho will invent a journey heavenwards as well as anybody. Poetry should be great and unobtrusive, a thing that enters into one's soul. Why should we kick against the pricks when we can walk on roses? Axioms in philosophy are not axioms until they are proved upon our pulses. Until we are sick, we understand not. Sorrow is wisdom. Wisdom is folly. Too wise and yet not wise enough at 25. Sick, you understood, and understanding were too weak to write. Proved on the pulse, poetry. If sorrow is wisdom and wisdom is folly, then too much sorrow is folly. I find that I cannot exist without sorrow. And I find that sorrow cannot exist without poetry. What the imagination seizes as beauty must be poetry. What the imagination seizes must be. You claim no lust for fame, and yet you burned. The faint conceptions I have of poems to come brings the blood frequently into my forehead. I burn like you until it often seems my blood will break the boundaries of my brain and issue forth in one tall fountain from my skull. 
a spume of blood from the forehead, poetry, a plume of blood from the heart, poetry, blood from the lungs, alizarin, crimson, words. I will not spoil my love of gloom by writing an ode to darkness. The blood turns dark. It stiffens on the sheet. At night, the childhood walls are streaked with blood until the darkness seems awash with red and children sleep behind two blood-branched lids. My imagination is a monastery, and I am its monk. At five and twenty, very far from home, death picked you up and sorted to a pip. And fifteen decades later, your words breathe syllables of blood. A strange transfusion for my feverish verse. I suck your breath, your rhythms, and your blood, and all my fiercest dreams are sighed away. I send you love, dear Keats. I send you peace. Since flesh can't stay, we keep the breath aloft. Since flesh can't stay, we pass the words along. Erica John reading Dear Keats. What a passionate poem. It's, uh, it has all the passion of a love letter. You know, you said before, Paul, that even if Keats hadn't written the great odes or Endymion, let's say, we would love him for his letters, which are sort of letters to a young poet, as Rilke later wrote. But his letters are instruction for anyone who wants to be a writer. And that's so profound of you to say. And so it seemed right to write a letter back to him. That line about uh, how we um, go in fear, we, we are not interested in poetry that has any palpable design on us. Uh, palpable, probably a word that he picks up from his great hero Shakespeare and the palpable hit. But um, he, uh, you know, the idea that the, the poem should, by indirection, find direction out, that it should not uh, assault us and affront us, um, is one that, uh, you know, is... is uh, sometimes I think overlooked because we, we imagine in many cases that poetry indeed has to do with a thought that is being pursued rather than a thought that is being discovered. One of the reasons I hate political propaganda poetry is that it seems not the proper subject for poetry. And, you know, at, at 9-11 the terrorist attacks, everyone was writing poems about terrorists. And I thought, I don't want to write a poem about terrorists. I want to write about what the poets always write about, which is love and death. Um, and I always feel that propaganda poetry has a palpable design on us. And as a result, when that moment goes, we hardly want to read it. The only political poet, and of course we're all political in a hidden way, right. as Grace Paley said, if you excavate the hidden things, that is politics. But 
the truth of the matter is that I think the only poet who really wrote politics well was Auden in our English language of poetry because he always came at it slant. He, he writes a poem to a dictator, and it's not Hitler who was coming to power at the time or Mussolini, but it's some mythic dictator. So I think he, he slayed that dragon, but very few can. Erica Jong, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. A Dear Keats by Erica Jong, as well as John Updike's poem, The City Outside, may be found on newyorker.com. Erica Jong's latest book of poems is Love Comes First, and John Updike's final collection of poetry was Endpoint and other poems. Erica Jong, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Paul. You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in newyorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast was produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com with help from Elizabeth Dennison. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice Podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>